Good evening, City Life. How are we doing? Man, it is great to be here with you. Praise the Lord. How about that worship, right? Give it up for Chris House and his team. My name is Steve Ruggiero. It's my honor to get to share with you tonight. Pastor Fred is sharing right now in Suffolk. We love the things that are happening right there, right now, and uh, so continue to lift them up in prayer. They're doing wonderful things out there, and we are as well here. A little bit about me. My family and I have been coming to City Life now for just over seven years, and that's easy to remember because my grandson, Noah, was one month old when we first came here, and now he's obviously over seven, and he's running around the place. You know, it, it's, it's what makes being part of a church such a wonderful experience is that we get to share in a lot of these significant life events. Like last weekend, we were at Kenny and Sarah's wedding. That was an amazing time, right? Last, early last month, we were at Carla Tatum's military retirement. You know, and I can't tell you how many times I've said congratulations for people graduating high school and college and new jobs and promotions. And the Ewers, by the way, they filmed that, but they're in Hawaii right now. I mean, at first we didn't really feel sorry, but then the hurricane and all that, so we're giving them a little bit of room. <laughs> I remember when we first started attending here, the Michaud children, Derek, Ethan, and Claire, were just these little kids. They were like combo SLT welcome team. <laughs> I remember when we walked in, my family and I, they were looking up, and it's like, hi, hey, welcome to City Life. And I'm pretty sure that today they're all taller than me. That I find myself saying, hey, welcome to City Life. How you doing, you know? And uh, it was about a month or so ago, Ethan, the middle Michelle, came over to my house to work out. And as we were working out together, we were exercising, I, I, I couldn't help but smile because he reminded me so much of his dad. I mean, look at this picture, right? <laughs> I mean, his facial expressions, the way he moves... And he, and he even uses the same words and phrases. I think there was one time when he got up from the bench, he pushed up a lot of weight. Let me just give a plug for the dude is strong. I mean, he's way stronger than I was at that age. I mean, it's amazing. It was, it was literally like when he got up from the bench, he was like, come on, that's good. I was like, yeah, that's your dad right there, right? I was telling you, it was like I was working out with a younger version of Pastor Fred. I kid you not. Well, right about the same time, I ran into an old friend of mine, and he asked me. He said, hey, do you have a son that just got married? I said, I, I do. I do. As a matter of fact, he and his wife are away right now celebrating because this month they're celebrating a one-year anniversary. My son Aaron turns 25 on Monday. And this guy, he was beside himself about how much Aaron reminds him of me. He was going on and on and on, and, and we'll get that every now and then if we go out together or I go by his work. But I find that funny because he's like three inches taller than me, has a full head of hair, <laughs> right? And, and yet the, the resemblance is unmistakable. Well, that's what people say. I don't, I don't know how much I believe. I'll tell you what. You be the judge. The... <laughs> Look, you can't see it very well, but 19, 1980, the 80s, baby, 81, right? I could go around this room, and I could point out how much your kids move, look, 
speak, sound, act, just like you. I could make one of these images of you and your kids. Think about it. Think about the Hauser girls, right? <laughs> Think about the Tatum children. Come on. Sarah Choate, now Sarah Crumb. I mean, looks just like her parents. Katie Walls. I mean, look at your I can't believe it. Sailor Godwin looks like they took Hannah's face, Pastor David's face, right? Overlaid it. You know how they got that? And put it on this little girl and said, here you go. Good luck in life. You look just like them. And when we notice how much kids, whether they're small or they're adults, look like their parents and their family, we always say, oh, wow, they have a strong family resemblance. The whole premise behind a family resemblance is this. Genetically related people tend to have physical and personality similarities. Physical and personality similarities. In other words, we're just like mom and dad and our family in appearance and action. Appearance and action. Let, let's talk real quick about appearance. Now, you and I, we don't have a whole lot of control over our appearance, right? Because I know if we, if we did, I, for one, would have spent a little bit more time at that negotiating table, right? Wanting to, to pick up a few things that I didn't get. And certainly there's a handful of things that I would like to leave behind. Amen? I mean, that, look, but we can't. We can't. Much of our appearance, it's inherited from our family genes. And listen, sure, yeah, we can style it differently. And we can work out to keep it in better shape. But at the end of the day, there isn't a whole lot we can do about our height, the size of our feet, or the color of our eyes. Amen? Look, no one is at the gym working torso. I, I've never bumped into anybody who said, like, I'm here, I really would like to extend my torso by, by two or three inches. It doesn't work like that. And there's no diet out there that's going to help you with that second toe, you know, the one next to the big toe that's about an inch longer than your other one. It looks like a raptor claw and it's scaring the kids at the gym or at the beach. You can't do anything about it. It is what it is, right? It's not up to us because those things are decided for us right here at a cellular level. That's a single human cell. Right there, single human cell. I'm going to take you all back to biology class a little bit. Inside of these tiny human cells, right, are rod-shaped chromosomes. You remember biology class? 23 pairs of chromosomes in each cell, right? We get 23 from mom, XX. We get 23 from dad, XY. Right? These chromosomes contain your family genes. Your family genes. It's the blueprint for your body. And that blueprint determines things like whether you're male or female, whether you will or whether you will not have dimples, freckles, cleft chin, straight hair or curly hair. It even determines whether you're going to be right-handed or left-handed. Even little things like if you clasp your hands like this, 55% of people put their left thumb on top. 45% of people have their right thumb on top. 1% doesn't matter. So even if you try to reverse it, it just feels weird. Like I'm part of the 55, you know, majority rules. But, but when they even try to reverse it, it just feels weird. 
Because it's in your genes. It even determines whether you can or cannot roll your tongue, right? And how you sneeze. I grew up in a house where people sneeze once. Then I met my son-in-law. He sneezes in succession, three times, every time. And so do his kids. All right? In other words, thousands of genes create your and my physical family resemblance, our appearance. But what about our actions? What about our actions? How much control do you and I have over our behavior? I mean, are we predisposed to certain behaviors? Or do we have a choice? I want to talk a little bit about that tonight. But first, let's look at the scripture. So either turn, tap, or swipe to John chapter 3. That's where we're going. John chapter 3. As you're turning there, listen, John was the youngest of the 12 disciples. The youngest one. He and his brother James were known as the sons of thunder. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have that nickname when I was young. I would have loved to show up in a new school and say, hey, I'm Steve. They call me Son of Thunder. (laughs) You saw the picture. I was skinny with a big puff of hair. I look more like a Q-tip than the Thunder Son, right? It is what it is. No hard feelings. John chapter 3. Listen, John chapter 3 is a special chapter. Not only because it contains one of, if not the most popular verse of Scripture in the entire Bible in John 3.16. But also, listen what Charles Spurgeon, an English preacher, once said about just this chapter, John chapter 3. He said, this is the chapter from the whole Bible, from the whole Bible, that I would choose to read to a dying man as one most suitable for such an occasion. Someone who did not know the gospel, I would read this chapter to them. I mean, that's powerful. We're looking at it tonight But we're only going to look at the beginning. So let's start at verse 1. Follow along with me, please. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And then Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one, as in no one, can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Folks, where John 3.16 is one of the most popular verses of Scripture. John 3.3 is one of the most applied verses of Scripture. This here is our spiritual birth. This is what changes our lives. The word again in John 3.3 means from above. This is what we talk about at City Life when we talk about making a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it happens and I think we're like, yeah, that's great. But listen, this is the full awakening, the awareness, the commitment, the submission of one's life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. A decision of our will, not merely of emotion. And I love that the apostle Paul, he provides a little bit more detail to John's 3-3 verse and what Jesus said. And he, in a letter writing to Christians in Rome, in Romans 10-9, he says this. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Folks, this is spiritual conception 
too magnificent for words. I mean, think about it. How do you describe something so supernatural, so amazing? How would you, with your words, describe a sunset? How would you describe to someone else the vast expanse of the universe if you have been fortunate enough to be in a delivery room? How can your words capture what you're watching when you see a baby being born? It's the same thing here. So here's what I believe. I believe that John 3.3 moment, that Romans 10.9, that the Holy Spirit, he imparts in you and he imparts in me his genes. His genes. See, in 2004, as I was getting a little bit of momentum in my transformation, what God was doing in our life, I remember I came home one day from a men's group. It was on a Saturday, and I walked in. I, was, I knew exactly where I was at my last house. I was standing in the kitchen. I was talking to my wife. And I told her, I said, you know, I, I've been just praying and going through my devotions, and I'm just wrestling a little bit with not knowing my biological father. You know, I, I just don't know that whole side. So I don't know. I just, I guess I was concerned because I don't know what I may be susceptible to physically, you know, or maybe spiritually, emotionally. I just don't know, you know, and, and I was just being honest. And I heard as clearly as I'm standing here now, and my wife was there, I heard God very speak to my heart. And he said, do not fear. You have my genes now. And I did not know in 2004 that I'd be standing here in 2018, 14 years later, talking about divine DNA. But I'll say this, that if you're here tonight, and there are times when you struggle about where you come from or whatever, I'm telling you, the moment that you do a John 3, 3 and confess Romans 10, 9, immediately in that moment, the Holy Spirit imparts in you his chromosomes, his DNA. This is a 23 in me. How many of y'all have done this? All right, 23andMe DNA test. Welcome to you. Find out where you're from. I haven't done it. I ordered it as I was working on this message. As I was putting this together, I was praying, what, what would they have found if they did a DNA test on Jesus? What would they have found? See, I believe this is us. This is us at birth. XX mom, XX dad, right? I believe if they did it on Jesus, they'd find this. That he has Mary's DNA, right? But I believe that Holy Spirit impartation is a cross chromosome. I believe that's what makes the difference in who Jesus Christ is. And I believe in our John 3, 3, that moment when we take our first spiritual breath, that he imparts in us this right here, and we become the XX, the XY, and that cross. And that cross makes all the difference in our life. No matter where we're from or what we have experienced, that cross makes all the difference in our life. Genesis 1.26, it describes how we were created in the image of God. John 3.3 describes how our actions come to reflect that image. Amen? Hold on to that. We're going to read forward a little bit. Verse 4. Nicodemus, like us, has questions. How can anyone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the spirit. Sermon for another day. Few different interpretations on that. I believe the water is a natural birth. The spirit is what we're referring to in 
Then he says for our key verse tonight, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. We're going to talk a little bit about that. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I believed that it was smooth sailing. All of my actions were going to be righteous. I was going to look like Jesus. I wouldn't have any struggles. I was saved. I could run around. I could skip. I mean, everything was just perfect, right? I, I felt this huge weight lifted off. No more problems. I'm going to look just like Jesus from here on out. It was amazing. And then I read a little more. And I found that there was another letter inspired by the Holy Spirit that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia where he said, hmm, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do what you want. Conflict. I believe that conflict shows up primarily in three areas of our life. And I want to talk about them. And I'm going to identify them. And I'm going to add an encouraging, overarching challenge to each of us when I identify these areas. Because all of us have this ever-present, moment-by-moment challenge within us is, are my actions of the flesh human, or are my actions of the spirit heaven? Before I identify those three areas, I want to say this. If you're here tonight, and you look back on your story as they were talking earlier, and you can identify a John 3, 3 or Romans 10, 9 moment in your life, then I just ask that you open your heart tonight to the Holy Spirit for encouragement and challenge and say, God, how am I? Am I reflecting you in these areas? Because I want to. If you're here tonight and you haven't, then we're going to have a moment after service where you can make that decision tonight and take your first spiritual breath. If you're here or maybe watching online and you know what, you haven't, and you don't, you're just not ready tonight, that's okay. Let me say this, though. Don't check out. Because I believe just shedding light on these areas that I'm going to discuss will have an immediate impact and influence in your life. So stay with me, okay? Amen? All right. That first area. Let's look at that very first area, that area of action. What is it where we reflect either flesh or spirit? And it is in what we value. Our value system. Our value system is like an internal processing system. Begun when we were young. Family planted seeds in us. As we grew older, had some relationships, some education, our values began to morph. They began to get some shape to them. They began to take, take some form, right? Began to lock in like some core beliefs. Until eventually, those values communicated to the world who we are and what's important to us. Who you are and what's important to you. That's what your values are communicating to the world. Those values, once in place, create what I call a worldview. Your philosophy of life. The way you deal with everything you come in contact with. I look at our worldview like a set of glasses. 
It's the lenses that we see life through. We put our worldview on, out of our values flows, we look and our worldview helps us prioritize and categorize our preferences. Our values, worldview, we prioritize and we categorize our preferences. And by preferences, I mean, at the end of the day, what we want and what we expect. Every one of us. This is what I want. This is what I expect. At City Life, we have a discipleship program known as Praxis. If you're here tonight and you do not have one of these, please get one of these books written by Pastor Fred. Amazing, detailed explanation of our discipleship program at City Life. We know it, right? The 1, the 6, the 12, the 24. If I accept the 1, i got to obey the 6. I obey the 6 by walking in the 12 pathways. When I walk in those 12 pathways, I become 24 virtues. These 24 virtues. Amen? Where our values are subjective, because you and I, we get to choose what's important to us. These virtues are not. These are universal, positive qualities. I mean, is there anything on this list that you would say, eh, I don't need that one. That one, not so much. Not, not that one. See, this is where, gotta get a hold of this. This is where we are able to discern our actions. Are they of the flesh? Are they of the spirit? Here's my point. When our values cease to produce these virtues, then our family resemblance is more flesh than spirit. The moment our values cause us values, desires, our expectations, our preferences, when they fail to produce these virtues, it's flesh, not spirit. For instance, if your values, beliefs, desires, expectations, cause you to be unloving, that is of the flesh, not of the spirit. If your values cause you to be unkind, that also is not of the spirit, that is of our flesh. If what you want and what you stand for causes you to be unforgiving, that is of the flesh, not of the spirit. Why is this important? Because, as Kuzes and Posner said in the Leadership Challenge, which, oh, by the way, shout out to Praxis 9, we go into this book in great detail, values set the parameters for the hundreds of decisions you and I make every day Consciously and subconsciously. Decisions that range from right or wrong, what's fair or unfair. They even determine things like where you work, who you marry, how you dress, what you post on social media. All of that comes into our values. It's very important for us to be able to do some introspection and say, am I reflecting the spirit or the flesh? And if, if I'm re reflecting flesh, if I look more like my human family resemblance, then I need to yield more to the Spirit to allow that to come forth. Amen? Amen? Look, I believe we can find solutions and answers to many of life's challenges by walking in the pathways. Absolutely. We'll produce those virtues. But tonight, I'm not going to ask you to memorize 12 pathways and 24 virtues. I want you to think about one thing. I want you to think about one thing leaving here 
when you think about your value system and your worldview and your preferences, I want you to think, when it comes to what I value, what we value, if we're to reflect heaven, then we have to prioritize people over our personal preferences. Amen? We have to put people in a priority. Amen? Earlier I mentioned Paul. He's writing his letter, right? Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. The same letter, four or five chapters later, he's talking to, to Christians at the church, and he's saying, hey, about disagreements, and he says this. He starts chapter 15, and he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We should all please our neighbors for their good, to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. When you're communicating to the world, when we're communicating, what's important to us? These are our values. May we all choose to make people a priority. Now listen, I get it. In the complex dynamic, we, in base camp, I talked, spoke about uh, the Army Staff College has this thing called a VUCA world, right? Uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambig ambiguous world, and, and all of this stuff. Is making people a priority a little bit of an oversimplification? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I believe it can help remind us and maybe even nudge us when we're making value-based decisions. When we walk out of here tonight, we got to make some value-based decisions. Hopefully, that we'll keep that at the core of our radar to say, yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. But let's maintain the dignity, the respect and the honor due to every man, woman, and child. Because when we do that, I believe we'll reflect our heavenly Father. Amen? Yeah. Area number two. It's in what we value, folks. The second place happens in when we're pressed. Amen? When we're pressed. Life is not short on pressure. Financial struggles, relationship issues, right? <laughs> Marital problems, kid stuff. Health scares, addictions. I mean, there's a whole litany of pressure that comes against us every day. We're trying to manage those pressures, minimizing the pain that comes with it. How many times have we heard, while you cannot control what happens to you, you can control what? Your reaction to it. Nowhere was this more evident than in the life of Viktor Frankl, author of Man's Search for Meaning. You've heard us mention him in here before. Frankl was a Jewish physician who spent many years in multiple Nazi concentration camps in World War II. He was one of the Holocaust survivors, and he said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. While few of us will ever experience the depth, the depravity that Frankel did, we all have experienced loss, loss of a loved one, loss of a career, loss of security, loss of a relationship. So the question becomes, what do you, what, what, what do I do with the pain, the tears, the discouragement, the heartache? I believe that brings us into that second area. When we're pressed, that we use that pain for his purposes. We use that pain for God's purposes. We have to yield it to his purposes. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, in the beginning, run with perseverance the race marked out for us. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning a shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus suffered, folks. He suffered because his pain had a purpose. His pain had a purpose. The salvation of mankind, the forgiveness of sin, the reconciling of, of man to God, and also because he endured for our example. He showed us when you experience struggles, when you experience pain and challenge, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Amen? It's easier said than done. Please, I'm not minimizing anyone's pain. I know some of y'all. And what you're going through is difficult. It's hard just to pick up and say, I'm gonna use this for God's purposes. But tonight, can we just make an, a, a decision to say, God, I, I don't know how you're gonna use this. I may not see the purpose, but I'm gonna yield it. I'm just gonna yield it towards you to see what you can do with it. Amen? David Brooks, New York Times columnist, wrote a book called The Road to Character. He said, happiness wants you to think about maximizing your benefits. Difficulty and suffering send you on a different course. The right response to this sort of pain is not pleasure, it's holiness. Trying to redeem something bad by turning it into something sacred. My friends, tonight, without a fresh perspective on pain, every discouragement, every heartache, Every diagnosis and every difficulty will stop us in our tracks. It will paralyze our potential and derail our purpose. We have to at least begin tonight to yield and turn that towards his purposes. One of my wife's favorite uh, authors is Dan Allender. He said, if we fail, if you or I fail to anticipate thoughtfully how we will respond to the harm of living in a fallen world, the pain may be for nothing. It will either numb us or destroy us rather than refine us and even bless us. Sooner or later, all of us are going are gonna to experience difficulty and pain in those moments. In those moments, just have a conversation with God that says, I don't know why. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But I'm going to yield my heart your way. You know? I believe there was a moment in Gethsemane when Jesus in the flesh said, take this from me. Take it from me. And then I believe he had a moment in the spirit and said, but not my will, but yours be done. I think all of us have those Gethsemane moments. I don't want it, but I'm gonna follow you. Amen? When we do that, when we at least try to do that, I think we reflect to a world who's hurting hope, promise, possibility so yeah yeah you and I we do we reflect a family resemblance in what we value and we can look more like Christ when we make people a priority and yeah we do we reflect a family resemblance a divine family resemblance if we at least try when we're pressed when we're going through difficult times to use that pain for God's purposes but the place I've saved for last, I think, is the most important. I think it's the most important one of all. And it is how we love. How we love. This is the core. This is the center of the Christian message. There's nothing else you can do or I can do. 
that means more to us or to the people that we come in contact with than the ability to demonstrate selfless love and compassion for other people. There isn't. And one of the verses that I believe captures this, not just the the depth of love that God has, but also our responsibility, yours and mine, to reflect it to a fallen, hurting world. And it's in 1 John 4, 16 to 17, where John uses a repetitive literary style when he says, folks, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. When we stand, look, the Bible says it is appointed once for a man to, man to die, then the judgment. When we stand there and we're looking at him, we want to be able to say that last part. In this world, you and I are like Jesus. We loved like him. That's the family resemblance we're looking for. And our challenge tonight, though, as we finish up, is describing and capturing what that kind of love entails. See, that's challenging because love has so many personal descriptions and definitions and experiences and examples. There's a slew of them. I mean, even in Scripture. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, gives us a laundry list of what love is and isn't, right? So rather than try to tackle a topic of this magnitude, I want to focus on one component of love, one facet of love that I think Jesus modeled to perfection that we can all, myself included, improve in. And that facet is empathy. It's empathy. In 1995, almost 25 years ago, Daniel Goldman released a groundbreaking study that he termed emotional intelligence, or EQ. Two and a half de- decades later, we're all pretty familiar with it, but back then it kind of rustled some feathers because his, his subtitle said, why EQ may be more important than IQ. So obviously, you know, left brain folks were like, whoa, slow your roll, right? But all the right brains were like, woo! We finally got our day in court, right? <laughs> so Goldman said, there are five components to EQ, five components to emotional intelligence. Self-awareness, self-control, motivation, social skills, how we interrelate with each other, and empathy. EQ is actually anchored by empathy. Goldman said this, the failure to register another's feelings is a major deficit in emotional intelligence. In fact, he said, it's even a tragic failing in what it means to be human. Put simply, empathy is this, folks. The ability to understand and share the feelings of another. And, this is important, and use those feelings to guide our actions. That's an important part. Use those feelings to guide our actions. Listen, it's the share part of that that distinguishes empathy from its easier-to-achieve cousin, sympathy. Sympathy stems from a judgment of another person's situation and is really a reflection of how you feel. It is. It's important, and it's helpful. It's caring. But really, at the end of the day, if we can be honest... 
It's really, it's about you. It's about me. Empathy's different. See, empathy understands, and it shares, and it connects. How do we develop it? Where does empathy even come from? Look, I have a lot of guys, you know. Hey, man, you know, look, I live my life one way, empathy-less, if that's a word. In 2000, and in fall of 2000, 2001, God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you what it means to love. And I was on a, I'm on a journey, 18 years later, still on it, trying to figure it out. So, so people ask, well, well, where does empathy even come from? Well, this is what one study said. Show the slide. See, empathy is a neurological process that points to the amygdala connections with an associated area of the visual cortex as part of our key brain circuitry. There you go. What? What does that even mean? Are you kidding me? That's it? Look, I get it. Empathy has a neurological component. Okay. But I also believe that there's a spiritual component as well. I believe that because our God is an empathic God. He's an empathic God. The Bible tells us he collects our tears. The Bible tells us that he is near. He's close to the brokenhearted. It says he, he knows the, the number of hairs on our head. He knows when there are none. Okay? He's that close to us. Jesus regularly showed and commanded compassion from loving your neighbor to even loving your enemy. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews 4, 15 says about Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. In the Greek, that word empathy means to be affected with the same feelings of another. So, we tend to think, sure, he's God though. He's God. Of course, he's empathic, he's God. What about us? Okay, to be fair, empathy comes easier to some than others. Absolutely. But so does patience and kindness. So let me tell you what one great man once said. In a Praxis book, on page 42, this guy, he said, we cannot give ourselves an excuse to give up on certain virtues. Some are going to be more difficult than others, but that must not be permission to settle for less. True. Being empathic and understanding another person's struggle is not easy, but it can be learned. It can be learned. How? Two things. Number one, with prayer. With prayer. The only way that we're going to make true heart connections with others is by first going to God. We go to him. We say, Lord, give me Give me empathy. Give me compassion. And, 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 and I go to James' scripture in this where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But now we say, but wait a second, Steve. That's about wisdom. That's not about empathy. That's wisdom. Well, here's what I believe. Why would a God who is love, God is love, we just read that, why would he be willing to give us discernment and direction for wisdom, but he wouldn't give us compassion and care for empathy? See, we have to pray for it. We have to pray and believe it's going to come. But he's not going to drop wisdom-based revelations in us 
when we're just lollygagging around doing nothing and not moving off the couch. He's not going to say, hey, here's a wisdom. Let me go change the world. We have to be pursuing it. And when we're going after it, the wisdom comes. So when we're praying for empathy, I believe there are other things we have to do. We have to pray for empathy, and we got to practice it. we got to practice it. Before I mention the six habits of empathy, let me say a couple things, quick, a couple quick tips on what not to say. Don't be one-up guy. Okay? Wow. <laughs> you lost $20,000 in that real estate deal? Man, that's awful. Did I tell you about the time I lost 20000 in one? Right? How about that guy? The one-up. Ooh, that's bad. Let me, let me tell you what happened to me. <laughs> Don't be worst-case scenario person. Hey, girlfriend, I hear what you're saying, but he's probably gonna marry, she's probably going to marry him, and he's never coming back. But you're good. You got any problems, I'm here for you. <laughs> right? Oh, dude, I hear what you're saying. Same thing happened to do a friend of mine in school. He died. Thanks. All right. Worst case scenario guy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh-huh. Number three. Don't give vague spiritual references. How about this one? Oh, yeah. I hear what you're saying. That's pretty rough, what you're going through. Man. Have you read Job? <laughs> you read Job? Go home and read Job. That's what you need to do. Or my all-time favorite. Brother, you just need more faith. <laughs> right? And I'm not saying this isn't true. I'm just saying that's sympathy, not empathy. And while we're saying that, try to avoid cliches, quotes, and superficial encouragement. You're going to be fine. That may be true. But my heart is breaking right now. You're going to be fine. How about this one? Hey, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right? That's sympathy, not empathy. Instead, we should do these six things. First, as you're praying that God would give you empathy for people, look, look around, be aware. Opportunities in a broken world abound everywhere. But if we're so focused internally, the opportunities are gonna walk right past us and we're going to miss it. If you really want an empathic heart, if you want to be a person of compassion, then begin looking, adding that to your prayer. And secondly, engage with people. Engage the hurting. Engage them. Empathy requires attention. Empathy requires attention. You have to be here with me. you got to be here. You know, if you're, if, if you're trying to help somebody who just came out of a bad relationship and they're pouring their heart out to you and you're like <laughs> looking over their shoulder and, you know, oh, let me get this text. You know, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. Engage. Look for opportunities. Engage with people. Three, listen first. Listen. Resolutions come later. I know you can solve it. Thank you. That comes later. Just listen first. 
That's the difference. I think sometimes we stay in sympathy because we're listening already to give a solution before we're even just connecting and being there for them. And then ask questions. Very rarely are we able to receive and understand the entirety of a situation if we're not just asking some questions for clarity's sake. And then the last two that I kind of put together is reflect and respond. What if it were me? What if it were me? What would I say? What if it was my father? What if it was my kids? What if it was my best friend? Think about it and then respond from that. The response more than likely will be, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. Is there anything I can do? How can I help? It's not easy. It's not. I had to learn it. And let me tell you, when I had to look, in marriage, I had to learn it. (laughs) Right? I learned something in marriage that telling somebody to calm down and relax has never actually made anyone calm down and relax. (laughs) It never has, no matter how many times, no matter how loud I say it, how many times I stomp my feet and say, will you just relax? They've never relaxed, you know? So I had to learn to just listen, engage, ask, and just hear, right? And I do these six things as I'm continually praying for God to soften my heart. If our love... And our life is to reflect that of Jesus. We're to be like him on earth. Then we have to pray and practice empathy. Can I have the worship team come up, please? The American Psychological Association said, I think we're only scratching the surface on how empathy can transform lives. That's what the APA said. How empathy can transform lives. And I agree. But listen, truly developing empathy, it's a lifelong journey. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. It takes time. I want you to think. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about looking in the mirror. I want you to look at your values. Do they reflect our Heavenly Father's values? I want you to think about the way you deal, you and I, me too, deal with difficulty. Listen, you've heard everyone who stands up here to ever give a message says, this is just as much for me as it is for you. I'm literally going through this saying, Repenting, Father, I'm, I don't, this isn't me. I, you keep trying. What are you doing with your difficulties? The pain, the struggles, the heartache, the tears, are they for naught? Or are we trying to use them? Use them for God's purposes. And lastly, where are you on a scale from one to 10 when it comes to empathy? See, empathy is a lot like humility. It's really hard to profess It's recognized more than proclaimed. Amen? I can't tell you I'm an empathetic person anymore. I can tell you, man, I'm a man of great humility. But the people in our lives can tell us. And they're here to help us. Please stand with me.
There's more to reflecting Jesus than making people a priority, using our pain for his purposes, and praying and practice for empathy. But I can promise you that if you just begin those things, if you even begin and work on one of them, I promise you, you'll begin to look more like him and less like the world. I said earlier when we started that if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, if you are and you want to make a recommitment, that there'll be an opportunity. So I just, if we could all just maybe just bow our heads. And, and in this moment, that you, that you would just begin to pray, Heavenly Father, you know us. You know when we lie down and when we stand up. In this moment, Father, we want to yield our heart to you, our struggles, our values, especially our ability to love. In this moment, Father, would you come and inhabit the rooms of our hearts as we make a decision here to serve you, to give you more of our life, to reflect more of your image, to be, as John said, Jesus on earth here tonight. Father, during this short time of worship, may you speak to our hearts. May we open them to you. In your name we pray.